Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Chocolates are sweet, but they don't last long. Flowers are pretty, and then they're gone. So this Mother's Day, why not give your mum the gift that keeps on giving with Ancestry DNA? Ancestry DNA is on sale now for $99, a saving of $30. Ancestry DNA won't just tell your mum where her ancestors are from, it can also pinpoint the specific regions within those countries, connecting mum to the places where her story started. Ancestry DNA lets us look back across centuries to see where her family lived and where they moved. Combined with Ancestry's massive database of official records, this can open up fascinating migration stories. Who knows? Give your mum Ancestry DNA this Mother's Day and she might even discover living relatives. I know it's possible because it happened for me. Ancestry DNA is safe, easy to use and completely private. When your mum gets the kit, she just sends back a small saliva sample using the prepaid postal box provided. In a few weeks, she'll receive an email with the links to her results. From there, your mother has control of the data and how she uses it. There could be more to your mum's story. Piece it together with Ancestry DNA, now on sale. Terms apply. This podcast contains references to sexual violence that may be disturbing to some listeners. It's the afternoon of the 30th of November, 1946, and in Waldenham, Surrey in England, a man named Walter Coombs is walking home from work. As he passes a derelict chalk pit, he glimpses what looks like a bundle of rags in a shallow trench. On closer inspection, Mr Coombs is horrified to see the outline of a body beneath an overcoat. He quickly summons the local constable. The police officer pulls away the coat to reveal a dead man who has a rope and a rag tied loosely around his neck. It looks as though he's been strangled with the former and gagged with the latter. The constable searches the overcoat. He finds a card identifying the dead man as John Moody and documents that indicate he's a barman at the nearby Rygate Hill Hotel. A pickaxe is found discarded in a bush a few feet from the body. And while the man's clothes are muddy, his shoes bear no such sludge. Police believe he's been killed elsewhere and dumped here. Upon examination, a pathologist reports severe bruising on Moody and concludes the man was beaten savagely before being slowly asphyxiated. This murder, the pathologist says, took place about two days ago. For a fortnight, police make discreet inquiries. Yet it's not until the 14th of December that Scotland Yard goes public about the murder of John Moody. The result is immediate. Three people involved in his disappearance contact the police and confess to having helped kidnap him. The trio also professes that they're totally innocent of any murder. But they know who is responsible. Thomas Lay. Thomas Lay, former Australian state and federal politician. Thomas Lay, once spoken of as a potential New South Wales Premier and even a possible Prime Minister. 
I'm Michael Adams, and this is Forgotten Australia. In the 21st century, Australians don't trust politicians much at all. The 2017 annual Roy Morgan survey, Image of Professions, which looks at who we rate as having very high or high ethical standards, found only 16% of us describe our federal and state politicians this way. Our leaders are down there with radio talkback announcers, real estate agents and insurance salespeople. But as unpopular as Australia's leaders are, none can hold a villainous candle to Thomas Lay, who was found guilty of cold-blooded murder and who was suspected of having a hand in the mysterious deaths of several more of his rivals. In his violence, hypocrisy, corruption and madness, Lay is unmatched in Australian politics. Thomas Lay was always cagey about his background. He was ashamed to have been born in poverty in 1880, one of four children in Somerset, England. His father, a butler, died in a workhouse hospital when he was just two years old. In 1886, young Tom's mother moved the family, including her mother, to Sydney. They were industrious women running a boarding house and later also a grocery store. Tom went to Crown Street Public School, but his education was spotty because his mother insisted on putting him to work, first as a newspaper boy and messenger, and then in her shop. It was on his newspaper round in Glebe that Tom became fascinated with big mansions owned by politicians and lawyers. A power broker. That's what he decided he wanted to be. While other boys dreamed of becoming sporting champions or having adventures on the high seas, Tom's heroes included the likes of politician Henry Parks, then championing Australian Federation. In his early adolescence, Tom was sent to work on a dairy farm at Windsor. Though lacking formal education, the boy had smarts and plenty of ambition. After a long day milking cows and doing other farm chores, Tom, by lantern light, taught himself shorthand and practiced transcribing lengthy political speeches that were printed verbatim in the Sydney Morning Herald. These skills served him well and at age 14 he got a job as a clerk and stenographer in the office of a Sydney solicitor. Grooming himself for the law and public office, Tom in 1896 joined the Sydney Mechanics School of Arts where he became a skilled debater. In June 1898, Thomas lied about his age, claiming to be three years older than his 18 years, so he could marry Louisa Vernon, whose widowed mother was quite well off. His wife Louisa was to be Thomas's rock, and an early source of the funds that helped him establish himself as a respectable Sydney figure. Thomas and Louisa lived with her mother in Glebe, and the couple had three sons. By 1907, now articled to another Sydney law firm, Thomas decided to enter politics. But as a conservative, he knew he didn't have a chance in Labor-leaning Glebe. So he moved his family south to the then semi-rural suburb of Hurstville. Lay contested the 1908 council election and won convincingly. From the beginning, he had startling ambition. Within minutes of being sworn in as alderman, he announced his candidacy for mayor. But Lay's bid was thwarted by his fellow councillors, who were put off by his smugness. Over the next three years, he'd make several more tilts at the mayoral office, and each time find himself outmanoeuvred. But Lay was an energetic local politician, serving on a lot of committees. He also preached on Sundays and was involved in the Presbyterian Debating Society. 
Lay presented himself as a force of moral rectitude and temperance and exaggerated Sydney's dissolution and drunkenness. Back then, the anti-alcohol movement was gaining in power and popularity, and he was happy to hitch his political wagon to it. His nickname was Lemonade Lay, which mockingly referred to his unctuous opposition to booze and his insistence that only soft drink be served at his political events. The thing was, though, that it appeared that Lay himself had come up with this nickname. No one recalled ever hearing it until he brought it up in a speech so he could bravely embrace this supposed slur as a badge of honour. Attacking a straw man was a tactic he'd return to again and again, and even possibly use to help him get away with murder. Realising he was never going to be mayor of Hurstville, Lay didn't stand for re-election in 1911. Instead, he set his sights on being admitted to the bar and began positioning himself for a run at state parliament. Lay became a lawyer in 1914 and three years later ran for the seat of Hurstville as a pro-conscription nationalist. With Prime Minister Billy Hughes's push for conscription splitting Australian popular opinion, Lay was dispatched to country New South Wales to talk up the cause. It was in Cootamundra, confronted with an anti-conscription rally, that Lay waded into the crowd, called a local Labor leader a liar, and then knocked over a man on crutches. James McGurr, Labor member for Cootamundra and later New South Wales Premier, described Lay as having an evil nature that sooner or later, must come to the surface. Even so, Lay was elected to state parliament in March 1917. The New South Wales government was led by Premier W.A. Holman, to whom Lay was bitterly opposed and who he undermined and publicly criticised at every opportunity. In 1919, Lay broke ranks, joined the Progressive Party and was returned the following year in what was now the district of St George. From 1917, Lay had been a member of the Millions Club, a social and community organisation that promoted immigration to New South Wales. The club also welcomed visiting VIPs, and this was how Lay was able to meet the likes of Edward, Prince of Wales, and Sir Arthur Conan Doyle when they came to Sydney. But the Millions Club's greatest significance in Lay's life was that it took him to Perth in early 1921, where he had a meeting with a Mr Brooke. What they were to discuss isn't known, though it's likely that Mr Brooke was seeking to set up a similar club in Western Australia. Whatever their reason for meeting, Lay only had eyes for Mr Brooke's wife, Maggie. Thomas Lay, Mr and Mrs Brooke and their daughter June reportedly enjoyed picnics together. Then sudden tragedy struck. Mr Brooke died, stung to death by bees. It was terrible luck for Mr Brooke, but good fortune for Thomas Lay, who was now able to begin a sexual relationship with Mrs Brooke, bringing her and June to New South Wales and installing them in an apartment near State Parliament. Maggie Brooke was to remain Thomas Lay's mistress and business partner for the next quarter of a century. A week before Christmas 1921, a member of the state Labor government died and their speaker resigned, meaning the party no longer had a majority. The leader of the opposition, Sir George Fuller, formed a nationalist progressive government on the 20th of December, and Lay was sworn in as Minister of Public Instruction and of Labour and Industry that morning. This was it. Political power. A cabinet position. But it would last just six hours. 
By that afternoon, elements of the Progressive Party had rebelled, leading to Sir George Fuller resigning, the government dissolving and Labor being returned to power. Lay was back in opposition. Down but not out, he came out fighting in the next state election, campaigning on a vicious anti-Catholic platform that inflamed the state's already sectarian hatreds. Lay's other great issue was still temperance, and he promised the canon R.B.S. Hammond of St Barnabas's Church of England in Broadway Glebe that if he was returned to office, he'd move for an immediate no-licensing referendum. Lay won, and in April 1922, when Sir George Fuller formed a second coalition government, Lay was made Minister for Justice. But once in power, Lay quickly double-crossed his temperance supporters, delaying the no-licensing referendum by five years. He justified this by claiming the temperance movement had no chance of winning a public vote then and that he'd actually done them a favour. They were justifiably outraged. The temperance movement was then at the height of its power and popularity. What Lay had done was give the hotel industry five years to marshal their resources, wear down the teetotalers and win public opinion, which, of course, is what they did. Temperance campaigners claimed, correctly as it turned out, that the hotel industry had given Lay a £3,000 bribe to change his mind. But Lay's hypocrisy was personal as well as for profit. In Parliament, wrote former Premier Jack Lang in 1954, we soon knew he was a secret drinker. This reached the press too, with Labor-supporting newspapers mentioning that Lemonade Lay was never known to have lunch without a bottle of red wine. As Minister for Justice, Lay betrayed his sinister leanings in other ways too. A few years before he took the portfolio, Eugene Fellini, a woman who'd lived much of her life as a man and married a widow only to murder her when threatened with exposure, had been sentenced to life in prison. Lay had access to the evidence in the case. Future Labor Premier Jack Lang was disgusted by what happened one night. I saw members trooping one by one up the stairs to Lay's room in Parliament House, he wrote in 1954. On inquiring what was on, I was told that Lay was holding an exhibition. He was displaying and explaining to members the sex equipment found in Fellini's possession when arrested. Lay openly gloating over his grotesque possession. It seemed to be a strange kink for such a great Puritan. To me, it seemed a most revolting thing. Another tragic murder case put the spotlight on Lay and revealed how ruthless he could be when it suited his political purposes. In early 1924, an impoverished and barely employed music teacher named Edward Williams was starving because he spent every penny he could muster on caring for his three little daughters on his own in a single room in Paddington. Their mother had, for the past two and a half years, been a patient in a lunatic asylum. But Williams' own mental health was in an increasingly perilous state under all this strain. He thought his wife's insanity was obvious from her lopsided gaze, and now he noticed one of his daughters had the same affliction. He was also deathly afraid that his children would wind up in state care and become prostitutes. When one of his daughters one night said she very much wished to go to heaven, Williams became convinced that this was the only course left open to him. At five minutes to eleven on the night of the 4th of February, he slit the throats of his sleeping children. Williams briefly went on the run before handing himself in at Newcastle Police Station. There, he handed over a note that read, 
Looking into the long years yet before us, despairing of my being able to keep and rear my daughters, Rosalie, Mary and Cecilia, I asked myself if I had love great enough to kill them. I had. I cut their throats to send them to heaven. At his trial, medical experts found Williams sane. The jury found Williams guilty, though strongly recommended mercy. Yet the judge sentenced him to death. There was an outpouring of public sympathy for this forlorn figure. Demands for mercy and a reprieve came from prison reform groups, a women's organisation and elements of the Labour and Nationalist parties. But it was Justice Minister Thomas Lay who'd have the final say. In mid-April, opposition leader Jack Lang led a deputation of Labour and Nationalist politicians and unionists to Lay's office to ask him to intercede with Cabinet. Hanging an obvious lunatic, they argued, was tantamount to cold-blooded murder, the same crime Williams had just been convicted of. But Lay was unmoved. He said capital punishment was the law of the land. It is murder, he said of Williams' crime, and there are no circumstances in which it can be justified. In that case, replied one of the deputation, the hangman's noose hangs over the heads of all of us, including you. Another Labour representative said that if Lay was so determined Williams should hang, then he should execute the man personally. Given how Thomas Lay's life would unfold, it's tempting to think he would have accepted the offer if he was able to. On the 29th of April, 1924, Edward Williams was hanged at Long Bay Jail. Thomas Lay's decision against mercy might have been viewed as the principled stand of a moral conservative and firebrand Christian, except for another decision he made regarding the fate of another murderer. In May 1923 in Arncliffe, a recent English immigrant named Leonard Puttyfoot killed a five-year-old boy named Percy Carrot. Trying to sexually assault the child, he'd clamped a hand over the boy's mouth to stop him screaming. The boy suffocated. Remarkably, the jury accepted that he'd not intended to kill the boy and convicted him of manslaughter. Then the judge added insult to injury by sentencing Puttyfoot to just three years. There was statewide outrage at the leniency that might see this criminal back in the community in as little as two years. Justice Minister Lay responded by promising legislative reform to stop sex criminals from re-entering society so quickly and easily. One of the provisions he suggested was castration. But this, like so much else with Thomas Lay, was but a posture, able to be turned on its head when convenient. That moment came after the 1925 electoral defeat of the Fuller government. While Lay had kept his seat, he was soon to vacate the Ministry of Justice. And so he tossed a hand grenade into the lap of the incoming Lang government by secretly ordering the release and deportation of Puttyfoot just 18 months into his sentence. Lay's plan was that by the time it became public, Puttyfoot would be out of the country and it'd be a problem for his political enemies to clean up. But the ship that was to take Puttyfoot back to England was delayed by a wharf strike and the incoming justice minister had time to countermand the order. Lay responded to the uproar that followed by arguing he'd only tried to deport Puttyfoot to protect New South Wales from him because he knew his prisoner treatment legislation would not be adopted. By November 1925, Lay had given up on state politics and was now contesting the federal seat of Barton going up against an old friend turned Labour politician, Frederick MacDonald. 
During the election, his party foot order was used against him, but Lay continued to play the victim, saying he'd only been trying to protect people from a monster. He even doubled down. At one of his rallies, he made a startling claim. It is being bruited about this electorate, he said, by people who are plumbing the depths of vicious misrepresentation that Puttyfoot is the illegitimate son of an abandoned sister of mine and a New Zealand knight. Is there no limit to the wicked fancies these disordered minds can conjure up? To put the record straight, my sister died 20 years ago, two years before Puttyfoot was born. Frederick MacDonald and many others suspected Lay had made up this rumour, but his campaign felt forced to respond saying if Lay named his source and this person was found to be a Labour Party member, he'd be expelled immediately. Of course, Lay didn't name his source, likely because he was the source. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks sleep number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now slogans appeared painted around the electorate saying no child was safe and accusing Lay of being a monster. Again, MacDonald suspected Lay of being behind these to make it look as though he was the victim of a vicious Labour smear campaign. Remarkably, the straw man tactic seemed to work again, and Lay enjoyed a strong lead over MacDonald as the election drew nearer. But there was an even more outrageous development still to come. On the 10th of November, with the election now just four days away, MacDonald made a speech accusing Lay of trying to bribe him to withdraw from politics. The previous year, he said, Lay, then still Justice Minister, had floated the idea of giving him a plum job in the public service if he'd resign his seat of Barton when Lay was ready to run. The coalition government subsequently losing power meant that plan wasn't feasible public service jobs were no longer Lay's to hand out. Except Lay had a new plan now. MacDonald was to stand against him, but then claim sickness at a crucial moment and bow out of the race. For this, he'd get £2,000 worth of shares in a King's Cross apartment block. MacDonald said that he'd strung Lay along, asking instead for £1,000 in cash. In their last meeting, however, Lay became suspicious and the bribes were never mentioned again. These allegations were explosive. Thomas Lay responded by saying MacDonald was a lunatic and instructed his legal partner to issue a writ of £15,000 for slander. He also said, My opponents have accused me of just about every crime except the most serious one of all, but I am sure that someone, someday, will make out a plausible case against me of murder. Even under the cloud of these allegations, Lay won the election. He was now a federal member of parliament and he wanted a ministry in Stanley Bruce's government. But the prime minister, who'd known Frederick MacDonald for three years and thought him a decent and fair man, was suspicious of Lay and wary of any stain attaching itself to his government. 
In a meeting, Bruce told Lay he might be considered for a cabinet position if and when he beat MacDonald in court. As 1926 started, Lay's worries got worse. Now MacDonald petitioned the Court of Disputed Returns to have Lay's electoral victory declared void on the grounds that he was guilty of bribery. If MacDonald succeeded, Lay might lose his seat, his cabinet dreams and even his freedom. Lay offered MacDonald a truce. He'd withdraw the slander writ if he revoked his petition. MacDonald refused. Lay threatened to sue him into the ground. He was also said to have used his Masonic friends to pressure MacDonald, who was also a member of the order. MacDonald's nerves suffered and, realising he was facing financial ruin, in March 1926 he backed down, withdrawing his charges. Lay responded by ending his slander action, saying he'd accept MacDonald's apology officially as soon as he withdrew the petition. But in a fit of remorse for having accepted defeat, MacDonald now refused to withdraw the petition, saying he had to see it through in the interests of truth. On the 14th of April 1926, Frederick MacDonald met his wife in a suite in a Sydney hotel. Things for the couple were looking up. She'd just done a lucrative property deal in Tasmania, and he'd been summoned to meet with Premier Jack Lang about a job with the Education Department. They also talked about a holiday they were soon to take in the Southern Highlands. MacDonald, his wife would say, was the happiest he'd been since before that wretched election. The following day, the couple had lunch in a Castle Ray Street restaurant and arranged to have dinner at 6pm. At 2.40pm, they parted company. MacDonald was to meet Jack Lang in 20 minutes to discuss this new job. He was never seen again. On the 16th of April, a letter was hand-delivered to Parliament for Premier Lang. Purportedly from Frederick MacDonald, it was dated the 30th of March, more than two weeks ago. In it, he said he stood by his accusations that Lay had tried to bribe him. But he also apologised for leading Lay on, for not reporting the bribe at the time, and for subsequently withdrawing the charge. He said he was on the verge of the grave, eternity, and that he must leave. The letters hints at suicide and admission of his own culpability meant Lang didn't make the letter public for nearly 30 years, when he quoted from it in a Long Truth newspaper article about Lay. Sometime later, Lang gave this letter to Dan Morgan, whose 1979 book, The Minister for Murder, remains the definitive study of Thomas Lay. The author had a graphologist compare the handwriting to known samples of Lay's penmanship. The expert concluded there was a high probability that Lay had written the MacDonald letter. By including accusations against himself, which echoed him floating rumours about Puttyfoot and inventing the Lemonade Lay nickname, Lay sought to deflect suspicion, and it seemed to work. There was an extensive search for MacDonald, but his body was never found. Three years later, however, Lay would contact a Sydney police officer to tell him he had it on good authority that Frederick MacDonald was alive and well and living in the USA. This, too, wasn't made public for decades, and when it was, it was interpreted as Lay trying to further muddy the waters, though why he chose to insert himself into the now cold case at this time isn't known. But with MacDonald gone and unable to defend his petition, Lay was able to have it struck down. He now had the federal seat of Barton. 
but Lay couldn't keep out of trouble for long. Later that year, he was the chief force behind a company called SOS Prickly Pear Poisons Limited, which had been established to sell a patented poison that could kill the feral cactus that had rendered tens of millions of acres unusable for farming and property development. Lay convinced many of his fellow politicians to invest heavily and the public followed suit by buying shares. Initial tests of the poison were promising and in April 1927, the company reported it was already making healthy profits. But Lay knew this was a sham. There had been no patent issued and the profits had been conjured with creative bookkeeping. The day after shareholders were told how well SOS was doing, Lay sold 4,400 of his 5,000 shares for which he hadn't paid a penny and realized 9,200 pounds which is equivalent to about three quarters of a million dollars today. He and his mistress, Maggie Brooke, then took off for a six-month tour of Europe, during which time Lay represented Australia at the League of Nations, as travelling federal politicians were expected to do if going on vacation. By the time he came back to Australia, the prickly pear debacle threatened again to ruin him. Prime Minister Stanley Bruce, already wary of Lay, now further distanced himself from the federal member for Barton. He would never have a ministry in the federal government so long as Stanley Bruce was Prime Minister. Even closer to home, Lay's law partner, Harry Andrews, had severed their professional ties and was actually representing SOS prickly pear poison shareholders who wanted their money back. But Lay's most vocal opponent was New South Wales state politician Hyman Goldstein, who'd also invested and who was now leading an investigation into the fraudulent company. Goldstein was set to give evidence in mid-September in a case that, if successful, would open the floodgates for other shareholders to sue Lay. Then, on the 3rd of September, 1928, Goldstein's battered and broken body was found at the foot of cliffs known as Suicide Point in Coogee. This meticulous man had left no suicide note. An inquest concluded he'd gone for one of his frequent early morning walks without putting on his glasses. All but blind without them, he'd fallen to his death. The spectacles were never officially accounted for. Had he left them at home, or had they been knocked off his head when he hit the rocks below? Or had they been knocked off when he'd been hit in the head by an assailant? Hyman Goldstein was well known for taking these regular walks. It was feasible that Lay or someone he'd hired for, as a former justice minister, he had access to a lot of criminals, could have pushed Goldstein to his death. However it happened, for the third time this decade, one of Lay's rivals had met a sudden, unexpected and unusual demise. But unlike the previous deaths, Goldstein's unfortunate end didn't help Lay. The SOS prickly pear poison lawsuits went ahead, costing him thousands in out-of-court settlements, money he raised by selling off his properties. The political damage was even worse, and in 1928, Thomas Lay lost the federal seat of Barton and was washed up in Australian politics. Now Lay and his mistress Maggie Brooke struck out for England. Though he insisted on being called the Honourable Thomas Lay due to the Australian political offices he'd held, over the next 15 years Lay's conduct was anything but honourable. He promoted a £1 million sweepstakes that was a scam in which only he came away with full pockets. 
Lay did do some honest property dealings, but then, with his son Keith, tried to renege on a transaction using forged and slanderous documents against two men who were supposed to be their business partners. Lay and his son had to pay nearly £20,000 in damages. In the early 1940s, Louisa, Lay's wife, moved to London and he now divided his time between her and Mrs Brooke. But Mrs Brooke by now was still his mistress in name only. They'd ceased having sexual relations nearly a decade earlier. But that didn't stop Lay's paranoia from flowering. In mid-1946, he came to suspect with absolutely no foundation that his 66-year-old mistress was having an affair with a 35-year-old former soldier, John Moody, now working as a hotel barman. In reality, Mrs. Brooke and John Moody had barely met. Thomas Lay tried to prove a connection between the two by sending checks to John Moody with a convoluted request that he forward them to Mrs. Brooke, which, in Lay's mind, would demonstrate they were involved. But Moody had no idea who she was, and so couldn't do as instructed. Nevertheless, Lay concocted a story that John Moody was Mrs. Brooke's former lover and that he was now blackmailing her. He took this story to a building foreman he'd been using, Lawrence Smith, and a similar version of the tale to a former wrestler named John Buckingham. What Lay wanted, and what he'd pay handsomely for, was the help of these men in abducting John Moody. Once Moody was kidnapped, Lay said, he intended to extract his signed confession to the blackmail, give him £500 and see that he left England for good. John Buckingham enlisted his son and a friend named Lillian Bruce to be part of this conspiracy. The ruse they settled on was that she would pose as a wealthy hostess and strike up a conversation with John Moody at his place of work. She'd say that she needed a bartender for a party she was throwing and offer him the job. On Thursday the 28th of November, after a dress rehearsal in which Lillian Bruce had laid the bait and even had the younger Buckingham in uniform as her chauffeur, the conspirators picked up Moody and delivered him to Lay's house. There, a rug was thrown over his head and he was tied up. Then, the Buckinghams and Lillian Bruce left. It's not clear whether Lay, Lawrence Smith, or both of them beat and strangled poor John Moody, or whether their victim ever had any inkling why he'd been targeted. But while the Buckinghams and Lillian Bruce were oblivious to the murder plot, Lawrence Smith knew Moody was to be killed. He'd scoped out the chalk pit dump site the day before and had been spotted doing so. Smith clumsily disposed of the body later that night, doing such a poor job of hiding the corpse that Mr Coombs would easily spot it two days later while walking past the chalk pit. Police found Lay's letter regarding the cheques among Moody's possessions and they interrogated the former Australian politician. He smoothly and convincingly explained the cheques as a simple misunderstanding related to his and Mrs Brooks' business dealings. The police seemed to be satisfied. But when Scotland Yard got involved and on the 14th of December 1946 went public about John Moody's murder, the game was up. Lillian Bruce and the Buckinghams realised what they'd been involved in and contacted police. On the 28th of December 1946, Thomas Lay, Lawrence Smith and John Buckingham Sr. were arrested. Buckingham agreed to testify as a witness for the prosecution. The trial at London's Old Bailey was a sensation. 
known around the world as the Chalk Pit Murder. Lawrence Smith's story soon fell apart. He was linked to the hire of the car that had been used to dump the body and been seen reconnoitering the chalk pit. Thomas Lay maintained his innocence, but the testimony of John Buckingham Sr. and the other conspirators was damning, as was the money trail he'd left paying them all for their efforts. On the 24th of March 1947, after deliberating for just under an hour, the jury filed back into the court and delivered guilty verdicts against Thomas Lay and Lawrence Smith. Lord Goddard sentenced both men to death, with the execution set for the 8th of May 1947. But unlike poor Edward Smith some 25 years earlier, Thomas Lay's plight fell on more compassionate ears with two doctors reporting he'd been suffering from paranoia when he'd plotted the murder of John Moody. Three days before he was to swing, Thomas Lay was declared insane and his sentence was commuted to life in prison. His accomplice, Lawrence Smith, also had his sentence commuted. Thomas Lay, now officially a madman murderer, was transferred to Broadmoor Criminal Lunatic Asylum. But the 66-year-old wasn't to escape his fate for long. On the 23rd of July, 1947, Thomas Lay suffered a massive stroke, which rendered him barely able to speak. With his wife Louisa and his son Clive by his side the following day, Lay asked for a pen and paper. He started to write. Was this finally to be his confession? Clive didn't think so. He thought his father was again going to protest his innocence. But it didn't matter, because Thomas Lay died before he'd scratched a few words. I'm Michael Adams, and you've been listening to Forgotten Australia. If you've enjoyed listening to Forgotten Australia, I'd love it if you could take the time to rate and or review at iTunes. If you want to know more about this and other forgotten stories and see photos of the people and places you've been hearing about, visit my webpage, ForgottenAustralia.com. There, you'll also find information about my new book, Australia's Sweetheart, which is about our forgotten movie star, Mary Maguire. This podcast was written and produced by me in Katoomba, New South Wales, on land traditionally owned by the Gundungurra people. As always, thanks for listening. 